It's been a few weeks since we were in Acts, and so uh, I'm going to give you a, uh, a quick, quick reminder of where we were at in Acts. And um, it was, and even the last, the last uh, part we were at was super intense. It was sort of a, uh, a primer on um, spiritual dominion, if you want to think of, that, of it that way. And um, so it wasn't exhaustive. It was just like, it's like saying the Revolutionary War was uh, fought over taxes. And uh, yeah, it's true, but that's not the whole story, right? And uh, so that's, that's sort of where we're at. Um, so, so here's what's happening. The, 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 the gospel is being proclaimed in Jerusalem, and uh, there's a lot of um, favor going on there. The church is growing exponentially, uh, specifically among the Jewish people and uh, the people that had migrated in for the celebration of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell. And so the church had grown miraculously, and uh, they were enjoying favor and great signs and wonders. And uh, eventually what happens is uh, the tide turns, and then at the hands of temple leadership and the government, uh, persecution happens. And uh, it uh, culminates or uh, really heightens at the point of Stephen being stoned, right? And he's killed. And it says on that day, uh, after that, a great persecution arose against the whole church, right? And so because of that, everyone except for the apostles, we're told, um, uh, are expelled out of Jerusalem. And so the gospel then begins being carried outside of uh, Jerusalem. And so um, that's all well and good, Uh but uh, here's what happens. What we we're focused on is where it's going and, and what's happening as it arrives. And so the first place that we kind of zoomed in at was on Samaria. And so we kind of we worked backwards to talk about the, the history of Samaria and why uh, this people would be a representative of somebody that was like um, not, not a full Gentile. They're somewhere in between, uh, you know, pure Jew and um, sort of like a, a half-breed, if you will. I don't say that as a derogatory term. That's just how they were known. Uh, the The... the uh, the, Jew, the Jews, the true Jews, hated uh, the Samaritans. Uh, we see uh, pictures of that um, through the Gospels. But eventually, as the Gospel arrives, um, these people are uh, enlightened, and uh, the, the, we're told that there's great signs and wonders, lots of people are healed, and that there's demons um, being cast out. And I said, uh, we were wound back to Jesus saying this was the ultimate sign of the arrival of the kingdom. He said, if, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, that's, that's proof that the kingdom has arrived, that it's here, that it's nearby. And then he said, and these are the signs that will accompany the kingdom expanding. And so here they are, signs and wonders, people being healed and um, demons being cast out. And so this is evidence of the expansion of the kingdom. And so that got us to chapter eight and, um, and uh, verse nine. And I'm uh, yep, there we go. So we'll be in verse 9, and we'll go through verse 25 this morning. So uh, open your Bible with me, and um, let me find it as well. And we're going to just kind of pick this apart. So let me pray so that we can cover our whole time in the Lord's blessing, and uh, we'll see what God would have for us this morning. So Father, uh, we come to um, hear from you, not from me. So I ask that uh, you would keep me from error this morning, that uh, you would speak your word of truth to us, um, not just to our minds, but to our hearts. Um, fix our eyes on you, plant our feet uh, on the foundation of your word and of um, your Savior, Christ. So Father, I pray that this morning would be both useful and um, edifying, that uh, we would be challenged, convicted, encouraged by what you would say. Father, um, we cannot do any of this on our own, no matter what I say. So we need your spirit to help us receive what you would say. 
prepare our um, eyes to behold your goodness, your grace, your beauty. Give us ears that are open to hear your voice speaking to us. And God, give us the hearts that we need to receive your word of truth. Father, we ask this in your son's name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're talking about someone, someone great this morning. So we zoom in on a, a single individual inside of Samaria. And uh, it's contrasted, if you will, with another one who is great. And so we have the Holy Spirit's power. We have false claims and a false conversion. Okay, so we'll start here in verse 9. And uh, we're going to do a lot of stopping. So uh, if you like to highlight or underline to help this story make more sense to you, this is your opportunity. So it starts out, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city, and he had amazed the people in Samaria. Now, but is an important word. It's a transition word. Uh, We have the story previous to this about the gospel arriving in Samaria and what had happened. And Luke means this to be a contrast. This is is now a different story about the same gospel that had arrived. And so um, we need to not make vague what Luke makes clear. So the tendency here is to read this story and go, well, I don't know if he, he really meant to say, like, this is not somebody that was truly converted. We, we don't really know that. We can't know the hearts of men. And this is true enough, but it's purposely put as a contrast word so that we identify that there is an individual here that's in contrast to all those we just heard about receiving the gospel with joy. So there was much joy in that city. That's what we just read in verse 8. And then now we have uh, this man named Simon, and he had amazed the people in Samaria, uh, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power that is called great. This is the, oh, excuse me, I missed an important word. This is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. So this claiming to be someone great uh, is a uh, a phrase that's not, it's not the first time it's appeared in Acts. And um, I've been like grabbing pieces of this soapbox along the way. And I haven't got an, a good opportunity to like fully like stand on it and put it out here. And so it might feel inordinately large at the moment, but I have a soapbox I need to stand on here. So um, just prepare your, your hearts for a second. So here's the, here's the thing. Simon is claiming to be someone great. And it says, they concluded from the least to the grace that he was the power of God that is called great. This shows that even those who are well off, the the least to the greatest doesn't, don't think size. It's not kids to adults. The idea here is those who are least in society, the poor, the destitute, the downtrodden, to the greatest, the kings, the, the, the people that were in charge of the city, religious leaders, they all regarded this man in the same way. So whether you were somebody that didn't have, uh, you know, two brain cells to rub together about what um, religious orthodoxy should look like, they concluded that he is someone who has godlike powers or is the power of God in human form, right? That's, that's borderline, if you think about it, just blasphemous, that he would be claiming to be someone called great. And so we need to talk for a minute about the reality of celebrity pastors, okay? So I just set down my soapbox. Celebrity pastors, and you're like, what does that have to do with me, Mitch? You're the pastor. What do I care about celebrity pastors, okay? Well, here's the real, here's the, here's the thing I want to say. So it says they all paid attention in one accord. And why does somebody become a celebrity? Um, because they want the attention of others, and they've done something to merit that attention for the most part. Now, there's a lot of people that shouldn't be famous that are, but whatever. That's neither here nor there. But celebrity pastors is an antithesis, and yet when I say the phrase, you know exactly what I mean. Do you not? 
But it's not a mystery when I say a celebrity, pastors. So pastors lose the plot when leadership trumps shepherding. When organizational leadership is more important than just being a, a, a shepherd. That's the, that's the definition of the word pastor, right? So it's unfortunate, but pastors are today not sought for biblical qualifications. Um, I, I, in fact, the, the, the most common um, major, if you will, in seminary is pastoral ministry with an emphasis in organizational leadership. We care more about the organization of the, the building, the church, than we do about the reality of what the church actually is. And this is a problem. So it's unfortunate that pastors are not sought for these kinds of qualifications. There's um, uh, a Netflix special, I think it's on right now. Uh, it's called Hillsong Exposed. If you don't know who Hillsong is, it's just uh, a big megachurch came out of Australia. They're a, a different denomination. It doesn't matter. But um, it goes through the problems of this sort of celebrity culture. They planted a church um, in New York and had a spectacular failing of their pastor in sexual sin. And uh, he is someone who was brought on to Oprah Winfrey. And he went and he did the whole public circuit because Hillsong had become this, this, this brand name that people liked. And so he was celebrated as this celebrity pastor. He's Justin Bieber's pastor, okay? So if that means anything to you. Well, not anymore he's not, okay? So Mars Hill, Willow Creek had a, a, a scandal. Saddleback doing this self-exalting, we're the greatest. These churches are guilty of allowing human skill, of allowing ingenuity, of allowing a brand to be more important than um, God himself being at the center of what things uh, happen. And so pastors cannot be a lone ranger. They're not lone rangers. And this is what happens is that when power becomes isolated to one person, they become unaccountable to anybody else. And this over and over breeds secret sin in their lives, whether that's moral or in the realm of money or finances. And so um, these people rise to stardom. They treat their lives as though everyone's here to serve them. And they ultimately crash and burn. And what happens, unfortunately, is that while they're gathering the congratulations of not just just um, professing Christians, but also the, the public at large, the world, if you will, those the outside of the church that aren't in the know also enjoy these people. They think these guys have it figured out. They're not the rest of those religious bigots who, you know, want to keep us out. And they, they don't, they don't uh, you know, tell us the hard things to hear. And that's exactly uh, a red flag. That's exactly why they're celebrated. That's exactly why it's problematic because um, the world celebrates them because they don't tell them the things that they need to hear, right? They, they celebrate um, the individual and the message they give, and they always do it as a form of compromise. So I want to say this. Celebrate God, not gifts. Not the gifts of an individual person. They're the talents. Don't be impressed with flair. Be impressed with faithfulness. Focus on authenticity, not applause. Okay? If they hated Jesus, the most compassionate, most servant-oriented, kindest, most loving, most capable human being to ever walk on the face of the earth, there is not someone coming after him that has figured this out better than he did, right? So if people hated Jesus, there's not someone coming later that says, don't worry, guys, I figured out the PR problem. I can bridge the gap between us and the world. So that's the problem. They're building a bridge between us and the world where Jesus said there's supposed to be a gap. And they're doing it on the reality of compromising the message. And they do this to win favor. And um, they do it and they, they never have to say messages where people say, I don't want to hear that. I don't like that. So it, um, it doesn't change anything 
for the people, it changes um, nothing because they don't ever get called to repentance. There's no hard truth. It's just all gray, soft, squishy, do better, be good. God loves you, okay? And so that's my rant about celebrity pastors. They're celebrated in the world because they don't offend the world, okay? Because they don't offend the world. So Rob Bell, Carl Lentz, Joel Osteen, Rick Warren, Andy Stanley, just to name a few, okay? These guys are not winning a cultural battle that Jesus said we're not supposed to win, okay? So uh, what we see here is there's a man who's sort of revered in celebrity status, and he's wielding a power, and they're saying, now, now he's, not, he's not assertively saying, I am the power of God. They're concluding that on their own. Why? Because they're going to him for uh, religious needs, and because he does have a power. He does have a source of power, but it's not God's power. It is demonic power. It's, it, the word here that it says there was a man practicing, practicing magic, it doesn't mean sleight of hand. It means something like sorcery, right? Or or uh, demon-powered or Satan-powered um, ability to, to perform signs and gifts. Uh, I say gifts, that's the wrong word there. So signs, signs and wonders, if you will, okay? So um, let's keep moving. Oh, I just got off my soapbox, okay? So when they believed um, Philip, oh, let, me, let me just backtrack. So they paid attention to him for a long time because they had amazed him, they amazed them with his magic, okay? So he's doing things, and they're all very impressed with this man, Simon, now, there's another contrast, but, again, verse 12, but when, they, um, but when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, underline believed, if you're doing that, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. So he's, he's, uh, he stayed close or followed Philip, if you want to think of it that way, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Okay, so the amazer becomes the one who's amazed. And he hears the story, or the word, if you will, the proclamation about who Christ is. And he believes that message. So it's something like this. The Messiah has come. He was Jesus the Christ. And he was crucified for your sin. And he was resurrected to life after three days. And he's ascended on high. And he sits on the throne of heaven. And that's the message that this man, Simon, believed. He said, I, I believe that's true. And uh, agreeing to it, he himself was also baptized, and he begins to follow Philip around. Philip uh, becomes known as Philip the Evangelist. We get a little picture of him later. After this, he's going to um, save uh, another individual, but that's neither here nor there. So it says Simon believed, but I ne you need to hear that belief does not mean faith. Belief does not mean saved. James 2, 19 says that the demons believe, and they're not saved. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe, and they shudder. So there's, it's not enough to know true truths. It's not enough to agree with true truths. It's, it's not the same thing, one and the same as faith. And then you need to see even more that being baptized does not save you. Being baptized does not save you, right? Any more than you sitting in, right, a, a Burger King makes you a hamburger, right? It's the same thing. Coming to church, being baptized, it just means you're a wet sinner, okay? So it doesn't save you. So here's the thing. He's baptized, and he's, uh, he believes, but he doesn't have faith. Simon is convinced, but he's not converted. He's convinced, but he's not converted. He's interested, but he's not invested. He has not invested his, his faith into God, into Jesus. So in verse 14, we read, uh, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, and um, they sent to them Peter and John, 
who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. There's um, sort of a little tongue-in-cheek thing here uh, where previously Peter and John uh, had, had uh, come to Samaria, and uh, while they're traveling through, um, they're, they're kind of rejected as a, for a place to stay, and they asked Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and burn these Samaritans? I don't know if you remember that story. And Jesus is like, oh, no, we're not going to do that. But uh, so now the irony here is that Peter and John, who previously were asking to call down fire from heaven to burn up the Samaritans, are going to arrive to pray for the Samaritans to receive a different kind of fire from heaven, the Holy Spirit fire from heaven. And so um, in verse 16, we read that uh, for he... Underline he, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, so I don't have a whole long time, and this is not the, the point of this morning, is not to talk about this, this gap, if you will, between what we hear about the, the gospel arriving, people believing and then the Holy Spirit being given or received here. And so um, this is not the normative experience for today. So when we talk about somebody being saved today, uh, we, we say that you are not just uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, but you are sealed in the Holy Spirit. And that is your assurance of salvation. And there's no gap. There's no like, I don't know if I'm saved yet. It happens at the moment of salvation and even before that, but we'll get to that in just a second. Um, what's happening in the text for us is not explaining what should always happen. It's explaining how it happened, okay? And how it happened, how the gospel is expanding to a new people group, the Samaritans. So right now, the, the, according to uh, everything that they know so far, it, the, the gospel is only for Israel, Jesus said it's going to go to Samaria and to Judea and to the uttermost parts of the world so that all tribe, nation, and tongues will be unified under the name of Christ. So that's not quite cemented. They don't get the full picture yet. And yet they go down to make sure, if you will, to authenticate that this is uh, the same experience that they had had uh, with the Holy Spirit. So um, you can think of it this way. This is the first time. So when, um, when you start feeding your baby new foods, uh, you have to make sure they're not allergic to everything. And so you don't just feed them all kinds of different foods at once, right? You have to like try green beans and you try peas, right? And so you do this, but you don't do that every time you feed them green beans or peas, right? Once you've established the, the initial thing, it's just, it's, uh, it's carry on after that. Does that make sense? So what we have here is like the first initial thing. It's the first introduction of the Holy Spirit to a new group of people, okay? A new group of people where... Um, had not been yet. And so the Holy Spirit was not absent though. He wasn't absent from arrival here, just saying that they had not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. He hadn't fallen on them is the idea. And so uh, we'll do a little more in-depth study of baptism uh, after the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit in a few chapters. But so no one is regenerated to faith without the work of the Holy Spirit. That is what scripture tells us. You are hostile to the word of God and it's the Holy Spirit that uh, comes into your heart, opens your eyes, your proverbial spiritual eyes to who God is and he enlivens and gives you the gift of faith that you might believe on Christ. So the Holy Spirit is working in the individuals who did believe the word, but he had not fallen on them in a different sense. So don't think that, he, that the Holy Spirit was just totally absent from this and how did they you know, believe without him, okay? So um, last week, uh, if you weren't here, Aaron was talking about different ways where we need to connect with God. And he talked about reading your, your Bible and prayer and knowing the will of God and all of this. And here is the thing. The Spirit is too often thought of as a power. 
or an object, a thing instead of a person, right? And, it, and when we think of it that way, we, we think of it uh, as, as we can have different levels of it, right? We have an increased amount of the spirit. And that's the wrong way to think about um, a person, right? You can have an increased amount of person. But if you want to increase your connection with a person, what do you do? You spend more time with them. You become more intimate with them, right? You, you, you want to know them more and they know you more. So the question is not how much Holy Spirit do you have? The question is how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? Okay? And so we need to remind ourselves that the word here is not it had not fallen on them yet, but he had not fallen on them yet. The Holy Spirit is a person. So greater connection comes about not by increased power. It's not like we have to increase our little spiritual bunny rabbit ears. I, that's even a lost reference now since there's digital cable and everything. But you know, back in the day when TV came over the air or whatever, I say back in the day, you guys are like, we invented that. Right, I know, okay? So, but you know, you had to like dial in and make sure you could get the better signal, right? It's not like that, okay? It's, it's about intimacy, increased familiarity, okay? So no one controls though, what the Spirit does, or where the Spirit goes. And this is another mistake that we make, and the profound mistake that Simon has made. When Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit coming and what the Holy Spirit does, he compares it to the wind. He says, you can see the wind like moving through the trees. You know the wind is there, but you don't know where it came from, and you don't know where it's going. And have you ever tried to catch the wind and redirect it or tell it where to go? It's an impossibility. So Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is, is like wind in that sense. And so we don't have any control over the Spirit. We can't capture it in our hands. We can't put it inside of us or make it do something we want it to do. And so when we recognize that the Holy Spirit is a person, this becomes a gross um, idea, right? That we would want to control a person and not manipulate a thing, right? That we would think that we are arrogant enough to, to say, well, I, I can um, either tell the Spirit I want to do this or I can resist Him and do that. And so um, this is not on uh, 100%, but it hearkens to Jesus talking about blasphemy of the Spirit. And so, again, this isn't like fully where I want to go today, but I want to jog your, your thoughts towards this reality. That, that um, Jesus said, every, every word spoken against the Son of Man can be forgiven. But there's a sin that is uh, against the Spirit that cannot be forgiven. And so we kind of wonder a lot of times about what does that mean? And... Uh, not to just leave you on a cliffhanger this morning, but I want you to realize that um, this, is, this is rounded out when we, when we start to think that we control God or that we are God uh, ourselves, that we have the power of God. And so you can kind of see where uh, maybe I'm going with this and where, where Simon is at. So the evidence of the Holy Spirit is fruit of the Spirit. Not, not you saying, I have more of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit coming out through you. It's produced in your life, but it's not great sign. You know, you're not zapping people with lightning bolts. That's not more spirit. Actually, the more spirit you have, the more humble you become, not the greater that you become. The more, the more Christ-like you become, the more Christ-exalting, the more Christ-centered, the more Christ-focused your heart and your life become. Because the Holy Spirit's work is to exalt Christ. And so the more Holy Spirit you have, the more Christ-focused you will be, okay? Now it says in uh, verse 18 that when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. That's a, that's a lot of problems right there. Okay? So first, it says, Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. So if you would re rewind all the way back into 
Stephen's speech, um, and even before that, when they commissioned um, these, uh, the, the deacons, if you will, in the church those, uh, to, to serve the tables, it says the apostles first laid their hands on those individuals. And one of those individuals is Philip, and he's the one that's commissioned. And so there's, uh, there's an importance to the laying on of hands. It's, it's, it's a sign of authenticity. But so, so here's what happens. Peter and John come down. And they pray for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. And they do that by laying on their hands. They say, God, send your spirit on these people. And evidently, in some way, it's a visible manifestation. And Simon sees that that's what happened. Okay, he laid his hands on him. And now this person has the Holy Spirit. And so he concludes, um, I'm going to give you some money. He offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that now, he doesn't ask for the Holy Spirit. Pay close attention. He says, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands can receive this. So what does he want? He wants the ability to give the power, to give the Spirit to people. So he's, he's now putting himself in the place of God, right? I can control the power of God. Do you see this? Okay. This is um, essentially paganism, okay? And uh, so let me, let me talk about what pagan worship is versus the worship of God. Um, in, uh, in pagan worship, the, the essential value is this. You bring sacrifices or payments to some god, to some deity, to some entity to receive back what you desire, right? Whatever your heart's desire is, whatever your need is, whatever your problem is, whatever thing you want addressed, you bring money, goods, uh, part of your crop, and in egregious cases, even your children, right? And so that was referenced by Stephen too, that, that uh, people were sacrificing their children to Molech, right? For prosperity. And um, so, so pagan worship is, um, is that I'm using uh, a religious power or some kind of entity, spiritual power as a means to my own end, a means to my own. Pagan worship sees God as a means to an end. So bringing pagan worship into uh, Christianity is totally foreign and it's blasphemous because it says I can procure for myself God's power to meet my needs, to meet my specific wants. Are you, do you see the problem there? That doesn't, that was not convincing at all. Okay. So, so let me, let me say this at the safest, seeing God as a means to your end at the safest, it's pagan worship and idolatry. It says, there's something I want behind God, right? I, I desire something more than God himself, but God is the means to get to that end. That's paganism. That's idolatry, okay? So at its best, it's that. At its worst, it's blasphemous. It's blasphemy, okay? It says, I'm going to um, use the spirit of God. I'm going to abuse and manipulate and try to wield it for that same end to get to what I want, okay? And that is gross and blasphemous. So the Holy Spirit is not a power that can be wielded, right? It, it's, it's not a means that can be manipulated or abused or falsely summoned or even tricked, right? We found that out in uh, the case of Ananias and Sapphira, right? They purport that they gave all the money and they didn't remember that whole uh, situation. And, and Peter then said, why would you uh, decide in your heart to lie to, to God, to lie to the Holy Spirit? So we ought not to think that we can manipulate or trick the Holy Spirit by saying that we have some, um, you know, real uh, altruistic purposes in our lives. And yet this is what we often do. 
And here's what's happened here, that Simon thinks that if he can procure this power, that he can make his, his, uh, his power that he already had, his influence and his, and his position even greater. And so what he wants to do is now wield a new power, right? This, this even better power that he had never experienced before. And um, this actually developed a, a, a word. It's fallen out of use. It's old. It's called simony. Simony is any time... Uh, it's based on his name, right? Anytime somebody wants to sell or deal in religious uh, goods or spiritual um, offices. And so there was popes in the past. Pope Leo um, wanted to sell indulgences, right? Indulgences were just so you can pay to sin, essentially, right? And, uh, or or um, uh, selling to uh, acquire a certain position within the church. And so this now takes the form of people who say, if you give me money, I will give you the blessing of God, right? So now we're kind of back to uh, some of these celebrity pastors. Jim Baker, Benny Hinn, Creflo Dollar, uh, Kenneth Copeland, just to name a few of the more prominent Christian names that supposedly um, are peddling Christianity to people, the spirit of God. They have some increased connection, some way to bless you if you just plant a seed or whatever, send me your money. And so they traffic in religion and they traffic in your needs to bring about their increased riches and their increased prominence, okay? And so what's happened here for Simon and what happens in those cases, and they're taking the good word about Jesus, a free gift and the Holy Spirit, which is a gift from God. And he wants to manipulate, he wants to buy it. He wants to purchase it to further his own ambitions and his own circumstances. Let's look in verse 20 and see what Peter says. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought, that you could obtain the gift of God with money. Don't freak out. Don't clutch your pearls. Peter said this in the most literal sense, to hell with you and your money. The, the word there's the, the, the word that's connotated for a destruction that happens in hell. And Peter says, that's where you're headed because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. He says, your, your silver is going there with you. These are not words that we use to describe someone who's saved or is simply erred in some judgment about something they're, they're new to, right? There's, there's, uh, when you're introduced to Christianity, you don't know everything there is to know, right? And so it, it's not just that Simon, you know, had a naive moment of, of you know, uh, misstep. This is um, a problem in that he has totally uh, miscalculated who God is and who the Holy Spirit is. So Peter says, your money can go with you to the place where you're destined for destruction. You thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. And so we go back to the reality of paganism. I want to buy for myself the power of God. So you can offer stuff in order to pursue your own ends. Um, I, I, uh, I've been to India once on, on a missions trip. And so we visited um, this temple just to see what was in there. And there were literally millions of statues. And, uh, and so what you do as a family is you, you have to know the name of this supposed God, and you go and you offer whatever it is that you um, can to appease that deity, that entity, so that they will in turn grant you what it is that you want. So whether that's health or prosperity, a good business, favorable marriage arrangements, literally there are millions of gods. And there are priests then that also sit outside and that um, have some increased connection. They know all the ins and outs and the specific deities and how you might better appease one of them over the other. And um, it's, uh, 
it's really sad to see people that want something so desperately and think that they must give everything for it. And the reality is that God is unlike, the, the, the true God is unlike all of those gods because he himself is the giver of all things and the needer of nothing. And so there's nothing that you can offer him or bring him that will result in him giving you what you most need or what you want. And so there's no exchange necessary or even demanded for God to give this gift of his son. It already happened. And the gift of salvation is free. You can't earn it. And the gift of the Holy Spirit is referred to specifically as a gift. And so if there was something that you could give or you tried to give, then you would be trying to pay for it. And therefore it would be a wage that's earned, right? And then according to how much you could give, maybe you'd get more of the Spirit or maybe you'd get less. And that's a problem. And that's pagan thought and pagan idolatry. And so um, the, the idea that there's be somebody who's a conduit or somebody who's more in touch with God, who has the ability to grant you um, a higher level of knowledge or more power within the spiritual realm is, is foolishness, uh, specifically in terms of Yahweh God, but it's not foolishness for lesser deities. And so uh, people like witch doctors and shamans and mediums and psychics and these priests that sat outside this Hindu temple, they do have knowledge of spiritual powers and you can try to request things and you can pay everything and you still will not receive true satisfaction in your heart. Look what Peter says um, in a rebuke here in verse 21. He tells him, you have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. You have no, no part or lot in this matter. The reference here is a portion or an inheritance and the matter there is in the Holy Spirit and belonging to God. And so here we have an example of a false convert. It's the, in the parable of the soils. This is Simon. He was the rocky soil. He's, he shot up at the beginning. He believed. It looked like there was faith there. It looked like there was belief there. But then uh, something happens and there's no root in it. it. It wasn't actually grounded in anything. And so we don't make our estimation of people's salvation at the beginning, at the shooting up of the, the, the stock. It must come up and stay. False converts don't simply err like in an academic opinion or naivete about some aspect of the faith. It's, it's that the object of a false convert's faith, the object of their faith is not right. So let me say this real clear so that everybody's clear about this going forward, okay? Faith does not fail because you don't have enough of it. Faith does not fail because you do not have enough of it. Faith fails when the object of it is wrong. Okay? So when your faith object is Christ, he doesn't fail. It's already been accomplished. That faith will work and continue on to the end, right? It's perfected. A faith in some other thing, now that's a problem. That's a faith that can fail. And so um, the question of saving faith is not one of a litmus test. You know, a litmus test, it tells you, read it out, put the, drop the water on there, drop the chemical on there, tells you whether it's in or out, it's good or bad, right? That's a litmus test. It's not a litmus test, it's an erosion test. How long does it last? Where's it at? Does it keep on, right? And corrosion and erosion doesn't happen on true saving faith. So when he says you have neither part nor lot than this matter, Peter's pronouncing the thing that we're always afraid to say. I don't know if he's in or out. Only God knows the heart, and that's true enough, okay? But 
let me tell you, the only assurance that you need is to ask, what is the object of my faith? What is my faith in? Is it in Christ or is it in something else? Is my faith in my faith? And that's where we get in trouble. Because we look at ourselves and we say, do I have enough of that? Am I, am I seeing enough of holiness in my own life to say that I'm actually saved? And that makes you the object of your faith, not Christ the object of your faith, okay? So the question of saving faith here is answered for us by, uh, by um, saying that the object of Simon's faith was not in ever in Christ. He wanted something for himself. And so the command here is, Peter says, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven to you. Repentance, if possible. That sounds dicey. Like we're assured in 1 John that uh, there's, always, there's always forgiveness for those who repent, who confess. He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, right? That's, that's 1 John. But what Peter says here is if possible, and this harkens uh, to a couple of things about what Jesus says about the blasphemy of the Spirit and how it's an unforgivable sin. And there's a few other places in Scripture where they talk about this, and, and we need to see that repentance being uh, something that's necessary also needs to go hand in hand with something that's granted. And who is it granted by? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enacting repentance and convicting your heart and showing you what's true. And so the evidence of his heart's condition was uh, shown in what he said, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks and your actions betray your heart. And so what he's done is he thought he could control and manipulate God. He wants this power for himself. He was never converted to trust in another power. He wanted that power for himself. And so the Holy Spirit's clearly not in him. So repentance isn't to feel bad about saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing or making a mistake. Repentance, you should know this, is a change of mind that results in a change of direction. It's turning away from where you're going, what you're doing, to something else. And that to something else is Christ. Turning away from your sin to Christ. That's what repentance is. And so Peter says, if it's possible for you to turn from the wickedness of your heart, that you should do that. So Hebrews 6.1 um, I think covers this for us. And uh, so I'm gonna read sort of a, a large chunk and then major on just a portion of it. So in Hebrews chapter six, starting in verse one, uh, says this. It says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. So he says, let's, let's move beyond the basic fact that if you keep trying to earn your salvation, it's not good enough, okay? Christ is the means for that and of instruction about washing and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of dead and the eternal judgment. He says these are basic doctrines, the things that you ought to know of what it means to trust in Christ for these things. You don't have to wash your hands a certain way to make sure that you have spiritual or religious purity. Uh, the laying on the hands, resurrection of the dead is your promised inheritance and eternal judgment, which waits for those who do not trust in these things. And then verse 18, Verse three, he says, and this we will do if God permits. So he wants to move past that and we'll do it if God permits. For if, for it is impossible, now listen carefully, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore to them again repentance since they are crucifying again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those uh, for whose sake it is cultivated receives it as a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed 
and the end is to be burned. Okay, now I'm just going to back up to verse 4 and walk through the end why this is important. In verse 4, the author of Hebrews says, it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. That's those who've heard the word of God and who've heard the gospel. That's exactly what happened to Simon. He heard and he believed. He said, that's, that's true, right? He says, they've tasted the heavenly gift. That is the gift of the spirit that came. And it's that, that word shared there, don't, don't think of it um, so much as a possession, but they, they've seen and they've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. That's everything that has just happened to Simon. He's tasted, he's seen, he's dabbled, he followed Philip around. Like he gets sort of the religious thing that's happening. He says, but after that in verse six, and then they have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to content. So essentially it's this, it's hard to restore somebody to repentance that at first pass, they don't get it. And it's not just that they, um, they have missed sort of the nuance of the situation, but that they've totally disregarded it and they've gone about in sort of a, a religious manner and then experienced those things to then go back to the point where I am broken in my sin and I desperately need to put my faith in Christ. That's impossible to do. He says, why? Because you're holding Christ up again to contempt and you're needing to crucify him over and over again to say that you need repentance again. And so I think here is the case that Peter's sort of talking about like that. He says, you've, uh, you've totally misrepresented the power of God. You think that you can wield it yourself. If possible, pray to the Lord that he would grant you the ability to see the wickedness of your heart. And then Peter's assessment of, um, Peter's assessment in verse 23 says that I see that you are in the gall of bitterness in the bond of iniquity. And gall and bond um, aren't super helpful to us because those aren't words that we use. If you think about it like this, he says that you're in the poison of bitterness and you're a slave to inequity. The poison of bitterness, he's, he's jealous of something. And if you notice the flow of thought from what Luke has presented here, from the get-go, he's a guy that receives a lot of adulation, right? He's, he's adored by others. He's a celebrity in culture. He's thought of one who is the great power of God in human form. And as Philip comes in, arrives in town, and he brings a new power, one that Simon can't control and cannot acquire with money or effort or whatever, he becomes um, jealous of that. And he's frustrated and um, because of the inequality that he has now against the true power of God. And so uh, for us, I think it becomes easy for us to sort of look at the superficial nature of what it talk about, you know, the power of the Holy Spirit and all of that. And um, we sort of, I think, measure other people's, um, you know, righteousness based on how we see God blessing their lives. We look at like the very top level superficial nature of um, what people present. And we attach the cause of that to the fact that they know something or they're more, more invested than we are. They, they're more righteous than we are, whatever it is. And so we think that God's blessing their life in that way. And um, that is, that's pagan thought. And it might not seem like it, but it is. And so um, our hearts are revealed in our own words, even when we try to um, dress those up in spiritual means, even when we try to make them sound like we have uh, clear motives. And here's what happens. When Peter rebukes him, he says, uh, he says I see that you're caught in, in the poison of bitterness. You're, you're, you're mad about other things, and it's, it is literally poisoning your ability to see what's true. And he says, uh, the response here is that Simon said, 
pray for me. He didn't get it. He still, he, he, he needs to repent himself. And then he asked Peter to pray for him. You pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. He can't make the request himself. And uh, that shows that Simon's not a repentant person. His heart has not been uh, softened and, and given flesh so that he can respond to what's true. And he's not willing himself to even pray for it. And so Hebrew tells us that those who have tasted uh, of the eternal and they have walked away and rejected it um, can't find this kind of repentance. And we see it here playing out. So um, the only thing that's left for Simon is the fearful expectation of judgment, which is what we read in Hebrews chapter 10, just a little bit later. Chapter 10, verse 26 says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains any sacrifice for sin, only a fearful expectation of judgment, a fire that will consume God's adversaries. And so that's the case of Simon and a warning to us of what false conversion looks like, of putting our uh, faith or our hope in the object of something, thinking that we can wield some kind of transaction from God by giving more and hoping to receive more, or even having something that's standing just behind God that is actually the true object of our affection. So do not think today that Mitch talked about celebrity pastors, and I don't know any of their names, so I'm good. That's not the point of this morning. The most astonishing thing about Simon's request is not the fact that he wants to buy the Holy Spirit. I don't think. But that he's so transparent in making the request. See, that's, that's the true naivety. Not that he thought that he could buy the Holy Spirit, but that he wasn't, he wasn't uh, religiously adept enough to cover up his true motives. But we are. You hang around the church long enough and you figure out how to obscure the true language and your true motives by sounding spiritual. If I had more of the Holy Spirit, then I would, then I could, fill in the blank, right? If I could know what God wanted, if I knew his plan for me, then I would, right? And it doesn't matter if the object of your true affection feels good or seems to be a needful thing. God is not a genie that grants our wishes. Jesus is not a bonus that we get, and the Holy Spirit is not a means to an end no matter how beneficial or good or needful the thing that your heart desires is, if the object of your faith is not Christ, then you're only using Christ or God or the Holy Spirit as the means to obtain the thing that your heart really loves. And that's what you need to hear this morning. Not that they're celebrity pastors, though they'll force that on you. And they're pretty convincing to get you to buy into that reality. That, that I, I could have more of the Holy Spirit, or I need this experience to know that I'm saved, or, right? But when we want God to get to something else, then we're practicing pure paganism. So we need to ask honestly, am I fixated on the benefits of what I think the gospel can bring? Am I fixated on the benefits of what I think the gospel can bring? Or am I pleased with Christ? Is he the satisfaction of my soul? Do I fear withholding or giving up control over my life, over a position that I have, over power that I think that I wield, over influence that I think that I have in order to become humble and weak so that I might receive the gospel? Let me say that one again because it was long and I think there was a lot of commas in it, okay? Do I fear or do I withhold giving up 
influence, power, control, significance. Do I withhold those things? Do I keep my arms around them? Because releasing them and becoming weak and submitting myself to God would cause me to lose those things. But you have to do that. You have to lose those things, become humble and weak, that you might actually receive the gospel. Or are you seeking to gain more influence, more position, more power by coming to God? If we seek experiences and signs and powers and wonders of the things just beyond God, then we've missed it. And we too are false converts. And we, we need to hear Peter's exhortation this morning, repent. Doesn't mean feel bad for wanting those things. It means realize that the object of your heart, the, 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 the true source of your affection is, is still on you. That's what's really happening there. I want this need met. I need this situation fixed. God, I, I, I need whatever it is, but you want resolution of that more than you realize that you receive God himself in the exchange. And that's a mistake. And so the Holy, the Holy Spirit is the one who is someone great. That's the one that we need to look to, the one that we need to submit to, the one that we need to seek and find.